again, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Scope of Practice, a podcast from the Connecticut Certification Board, as you know, where we like to discuss issues and topics that are often misunderstood or sometimes even not widely available to the field. And today's discussion fits perfectly into the former. Focusing on the language of recovery is nothing new for our field as we build awareness of what message is conveyed by our words. There are certain words or phrases which we clearly see as stigmatizing or discriminating in their meaning, and different terms are developed to replace them. We recognize that language is ever-changing, so we are likely to make changes to communicate our points more respectfully and hopefully. But how about things that aren't as easily recognized as potentially being stigmatizing? How do we respond to them? We are a field that often uses slogans or bumper sticker text to convey our message, often out of habit and not with conscious thought, under the assumption that they will be received with the beneficence from which they came. Today's guest is someone who pays attention to the potential impact of the messaging, be it positive or negative, and brings more awareness to the importance of not only what we say, but how we say it. Our guest today is William Stauffer, a person in long-term recovery with decades of experience in the substance use disorder system. He leads PROA, a statewide recovery community organization of the state of Pennsylvania. He's a nationally recognized writer and trainer. In 2019, he was honored as the Vernon Johnson Award Individual Recovery Advocate. He was recently named to the Leadership Council of Foundations for Drug Policy Solutions, a national think slash do tank. I had the pleasure of presenting on the same conference with Bill a few years ago in Salt Lake City. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Welcome, Bill. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me uh, on today. When we look at messaging about recovery from substance use disorders, you take on the phrase recovery is possible, which is something we see everywhere. And define that kind of as something that's not as especially positive, nor confidence building. Now, can you talk about that and explain your reasoning a little bit? I think the way that you started out introducing this topic, I think it's all well-meaning. So when the concept of recovery as possible was introduced, my sense was the intention is that we need to let people know that people can and do recover. And so that's where the concept came from. It's a slogan I see nationally. When I think of recovery as possible, the piece that I wrote that you initially responded to, I think, you know, it's possible to swim across the English Channel or to land on the moon, but that doesn't mean that you're going to do those things. It's not exactly the kind of confidence builder as far as the capacity to heal from this really serious condition. So in that way, I think that the slogan doesn't take us where we need to go because it it doesn't frame it out as something that we have some confidence that can occur given the right circumstances. And I think in the very, very stigmatizing language of the past, this was a positive step forward. And it's said, continually said, with beneficence. It's meant positively and to inspire hope. But when you kind of break it down, it's not that hope-inspiring altogether. You also talk about saying recovery is expected. What if we change the two? Recovery is expected. But you make a really strong point with that, that the heavy yoke, if we say that, the heavy yoke of recovery success sits on the the shoulders solely of the person with the substance use disorder, which I thought was fascinating. What does that specifically mean? So, I mean, just to to finish up with the idea of recovery is possible, Mm -hmm. let's say you went to, you know, the oncologist and the oncologist says you have fairly significant type of cancer, but we want you to know it's possible that you'll go into remission. 
I think that that frames it out in ways that people can understand. That's not exactly the life-saving message that you want. When Conversely, with your second question, when we talk about recovery as expected, the expectation of by whom and under what conditions. I mean, the reality is right now in America that most people who need some form of substance use support or treatment don't get it. And those that do get it don't get the minimum dose. I mean, we know that NIDA has long said that the minimum dose of effective care for the average person is 90 days. And we're not doing that for most Americans. So people typically get, when they do get help, they get a lower intensity, shorter duration of care than they would typically need. I think, you know, recently I co-presented with Dr. John Kelly of Harvard, and his analogy, and you've probably heard it before, is a house fire, that we do an okay job when the sirens go off of dousing the house fire, but we do a very poor job of keeping it out. We don't monitor, like if there's a fire, firemen stay on the scene to make sure that the thing doesn't catch and reignite. We don't do that with addiction, and we don't do anything about rebuilding after the structure has burned down. And so I like his analogy because it frames out that this is a longer-term thing than, than putting a couple hoses on the flames until you don't see flames anymore. So recovery as an expectation is somewhat insincere in a, in, a, in a system that doesn't provide people with what they need. Using that analogy, and that is a perfect one to explain it, you know, we're looking at it, and when we talk about somebody who's in treatment, it's it's one in 10 of those who need to be have access to treatment. So we're only getting to 10% or so people who actually need it. And we're talking about, and I don't want to generalize, so we're, we're not saying that anybody with a substance use disorder needs to go to treatment. We know that many, if not most, find their own way without going to treatment. But we're looking at some of the most vulnerable people with the most damage done to their lives and where that need that level of not just putting the fire out, but rebuilding. So if we say it's expected, it's as if no work has to be done. It's just going to happen in a thing, you know, kind of in a vacuum. And, and that's not realistic either, because we know that the person receiving services has to work their tails off. But yeah. I'm also heartened that the profession that we know that the professional needs to work their tail off as well. Absolutely. But and to frame it out, it's this is a chronic condition. And and I to your point, there are mild, moderate, and severe mm -hmm. forms substance use disorder, and not all of them need intensive care. We sort of framed it all out as the same, and I think that our systems are starting to come along with the science that's showing it's a continuum, that a substance use lies on a continuum from non-problematic use to what I would consider addiction. The healing of the processes also occurs on a continuum as well. But think about, for those who have the severe form, it's a chronic condition, and just like something like diabetes or heart disease, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of work to heal from. And even under the best of circumstances, your first incident, your first intervention may not be the one that's successful. So if you're sitting there and you're being told that recovery is expected and you're not recovering with a condition with as much, you know, moral, all of the, the moral framing of this as a characterological defect or things like that, you're sitting there wondering, well, what's wrong with me because recovery is expected and, and I didn't recover. That really can become a challenge for persons. I think that's been a pervasive message, whether it's been said or unsaid, a pervasive message over the years. And we've heard when somebody doesn't get better and we're trying to help, it's their problem. Instead of now we're starting to look at it and say, 
ask the question, maybe I didn't do what I could, or maybe I wasn't able to reach that person. So I'll try something else, or in some cases, a different person. So it's, it's, I'm not, the idea of I'm not going to work harder than you has no place. It's, we have to work hard, especially for somebody who's in the early stages and may not have the capabilities or is still kind of contemplative about whether they want to, to get involved in any sort of treatment. We have to work harder to get our message so it suits the way they need to hear it and understand what works for them. And a lot of that kind of messaging, you know, from the olden days, I've been around a while, I know you have too, it never sat well with me that there was a term many years ago that was used often in rehabs where they'll say, look around you, you know, X percentage of people in this room won't make it, and you don't want to be the ones that don't make it. And it's like, this is such a perverse way of getting people to look at what's occurring. We shouldn't do that to people. And that kind of plays into my next question for you, because it's about the treatment system, because I think the system is wrapped hand in hand with the messaging. And it's at one point, very recently, you were part of a national survey and that there were some pretty shocking views about the current treatment system. And if you've talked to individuals like Dr. Mark Weibring, uh, I can't think of his name now, who in Minnesota, who just thinks the system should be bulldozed, there are a lot of shocking views. Can you talk about that survey a bit? We actually did. Two, I think the one you're referencing mm-hmm. was focusing on healthcare workers. Yes. And for background for listeners, our organization, ProA, an organization called Elevist, which focuses primarily on harm reduction, and a group called Rewe, which is a Canadian data firm that has a fairly unique way of collecting data, large amounts of data in a reliable fashion in a short period of time. That for background, they're used by the CDC and the State Department and others around the country, we gathered for the stigma, uh, healthcare stigma survey, about 25,000, just under 25,000 survey results in about a month, and a bit over 5,000 of those were healthcare providers. And we did find the results that we found in endorsed stigma, or what they believed, was fairly high. We saw that uh, 54% of healthcare workers would not be willing to live next to somebody with a substance use disorder. 42% of healthcare workers see people who use drugs as incompetent. 57% would not be willing to work on the same job. And 44% perceived people with substance use disorders misuse drugs as untrustworthy. You know, this is a primary intervention point for people with substance use disorders. It wasn't shocking to me because I've taken a number of people over the decades to healthcare institutions and watch them fairly deplorable treatment based on those kinds of attitudes. I recently talked to someone on the last podcast whose dissertation was about staff attitudes about OTPs from those working in OTPs. And the messaging from them, it really was, they were involved in some stigmatizing words and using phrases and involvement of stigmatizing activity. And most of them were well-meaning, but there's something they had learned 30 years ago or how the system would just beat down the person receiving services and beat down the employees in this thing, that it was created this negative attitude. I was surprised to to hear that, but what you're saying fits right into that. And we know that a lot of times in primary care or primary entrances into the system, people don't have a lot of experiences with individuals with substance use disorders other than seeing folks at their worst. They may not know that their neighbor, that the 
play softball or pickleball with, or this may have a substance use disorder and is in recovery because it's not something that comes up in, in their general conversation. And some of the other things that we found, and I agree with you, I think that some of these attitudes are long, they come from what people have learned a long time ago. I know people in recovery who work at hospital systems and they will not be open about their recovery status because of the attitudes in those institutions. One of those healthcare providers let me know that in their hospital system, somebody with a substance use disorder is known as a gomer, and gomer is get out of my ER. So they're they're not seen as people who are worth treating. But substance use disorders are prevalent, so you know they're more widespread than these individuals may think. One of the most shocking findings, maybe, and it it wasn't to Sean Fogler is the person at Elevis that that we put this research together with, and he is a physician. 40% of the healthcare providers acknowledge drug use. That shouldn't be surprising. Drugs are fairly commonly used across our society. The thing about healthcare workers and physicians particularly is that they see themselves as above having one of these challenges. So they party hard because it's hard work, but when somebody ends up having a problem, they sort of like it shifts things all of a sudden where you went from being my colleague who who maybe parties some to a person, one of those people with a problem. And where that really gets to be troubling, and if, if we think about it this way, we've just gone through this COVID pandemic and there's mass trauma across our society because of that. Arguably, few have experienced more than healthcare workers and first responders who dealt with a tremendous amount of trauma load and other things. And we know that their substance use went up. But the stigma is, I'm concerned that, that the stigma about substance use may actually harm them as well. Because if you believe that people are untrustworthy or incompetent, how can you square that with you yourself having a problem? So it's it sort of like, uh, it makes it hard for healthcare workers to seek help when they need it as well. It goes back to something that the our former single state agency director, uh, Patricia Reber, always says when I, I see her speak and it's, we start talking about stigma. She says, we need to change the discussion from stigma to discrimination because that's it, putting it in action. And that's ultimately what follows. If you carry these beliefs, the way you think ultimately impacts the way you act. So you're going to get involved in discriminatory behaviors, even though you don't mean to. That's not your intention. There were yeah. some things that your group discovered that absolutely kind of blew me away. And that is, one of the things is two places that people who use drugs are least willing to seek help from are law enforcement agencies. I can get that. But healthcare facilities, they're not willing to go to or least willing to go to healthcare facilities for care. Was that a surprise to you? Unfortunately, no. Because of the kind of treatment, I have taken people I know. I mean, I'm 37 years in recovery, and I've taken a number of people to hospital settings. And like, even when it's not you, you're coming along with somebody who has a who needs help. You're not treated well, and people know that. So, like, people get the message. People understand when all of these underlying attitudes come out in the way that people respond to you. So. If you have a substance use issue and you go to the hospital and you're treated as you're incompetent, untrustworthy, and you're not going to get better, which is some of the findings, you kind of get that message that you're not wanted there and they don't believe you're just in the way. So it's it's very unpleasant and that needs to change. You know, back to your other point about discrimination, 
some very wise people helped set up our field. And I say that we've never achieved a perfect system because of all the challenges that we face. I'm a like a recovery historian, and I was delving into the Hughes Act of 1970, which mm-hmm. is essentially the formative federal law that created our state systems, our, our county systems, all of the all of our infrastructure around substance use disorders. It actually the original version had anti-discrimination language in it that hospitals would not be allowed to uh, discriminate. It was focused on alcohol at that point. But for it to pass, that was one of the things that the very last minute before the end of the congressional session, and it would be nullified, had to come out before the president would sign it in 1970. So they knew that we needed to have some anti-discrimination language in our laws. And we just, you know, we need to revisit that. Yeah, the war on drugs and what the president at the time knew he was doing. It's been admitted by his former staffers, you know, kind of what they were doing. If you're trying to criminalize individuals that were using marijuana, which they call the anti-war left, or individuals of color taking any discriminatory language out defeats the purpose of that. So even in in positive legislation, the war on drugs still put their hand in it. Another thing that came out of it was that, you know, more interactions with patients who use drugs or those that are in recovery tends to encourage less stigmatizing views from healthcare providers. But the issue with that is very complicated. So the more we spend around healthcare workers, spend around time around folks with SUDs, whether active or in recovery, it can change their views. But what are some of the complicating factors? You know, one of the complicating factors is is that you have to get people to a point where they're willing to be open, and that the stigma is is very ingrained in our in our care systems. One of my mentors, and we've talked about these issues a fair amount with in my circles, one of my colleagues, one of the things that he would do when he was invited into medical schools to talk about addiction is that he would take the medical students and he would forbid them from talking about book knowledge. They couldn't talk about what we know about what alcohol or drugs do to the brain or organs or those kinds of things. He said, we're going to start this out by talking about your own personal experiences, you and people around you. And it was a very different conversation. So you know, part of the barrier to this is getting people to think about those that they serve as people. It's sadly that simple. So when those medical students started talking about their own experiences with substance use around them and in their own families and things, they came from a much more empathetic space than when talking about it in a clinical way. So I, mean, I think that that's part of that barrier that we need to shift around is getting more of those conversations to happen. And like we were talking about a little bit earlier, just simply not tolerating discriminatory practices. And that goes into something that I just was in the middle of last week. I had a chance to have a conversation with Johan Hari. Johan Hari is a journalist. He's not an individual in recovery. He's not an individual who works in the system. But he wrote a book, Chasing the Scream, where he interviewed thousands of people involved in the, the drug trade, with substance use disorders, in recovery, people who wanted care, didn't, and learned so much. And it all came from what he called the drive. There were people in his family that he loved very much, but their behavior was making everybody angry and was driving everybody crazy. And he said, but I love them very much. So I'm going to get an experience around that. And that's where he talks about connection and things like that. Very brilliant stuff. I certainly recommend Chasing the Scream because it's done from the outside looking in. 
It gives us a different perspective. But that's it. When you start looking at how can we reach people, what can we do to put that hand out there and say, we want to be helpful. We want to you know, find out what you're seeking and help you get there. It changes the world. And we say that we meet people where we're at, but that's a it's a punchline right now, large scale. It really is. And you're right. It is a good book. And I think, you know, to your point, when someone has a severe substance use disorder, they're doing oftentimes they're doing things that can be really difficult for people around them. What I heard you talk about is that he was able to get past that. And like, I love these people. I want to understand why this is occurring to them. And it takes that jump beyond some of that maybe difficult behavior to see them as people who need help. And we're seeing that in different pockets of the field. Robert Weiss in LA does a lot of attacking the idea of codependence, where we punish people for caring about what happens to someone that they love who has a substance use disorder. Oh, you're enabling them. Instead of saying, we love your energy, we love that you care about this person, let's try to find some other ways to be helpful. So instead of saying, oh, you're wrong, you're enabling. So there are pockets of the field that are are starting to change some of this stuff. Can I just expand on that for a minute? Because I think that that term codependency is really interesting. I think it also, I've been around a while and I, yeah. I know you have too, but when that initially, that term came out, codependent, no more, Melody Beattie, which is a, actually a pretty fun, I think that's a phenomenal book explaining some dynamics pretty well. It was an empowering concept. It wasn't intended to be a label used as a weapon against people. It was to have people understand some behavior in their own context. What it became is a weapon where yeah. people used it to shame people. I don't use the word anymore because it has become so tainted, but it also came just to go full circle with our where we started from. It came from a very well-meaning place to help empower people who were experiencing this dynamic that needed a name. And Dr. Weiss now calls it pro-dependence. People care. Let's encourage them to keep caring and help them find ways that they can do that. And that's healthy for everybody. So it's it, you're like language and things do kind of do the full circle. Well, reading this survey, a couple other things jumped out at me. One was the fact that a significant number of respondents were white males with traditionally more access to services and the like, you know, more privileged and the second is that over 70% had no SUD involvement in their family or themselves, and they didn't identify their any involvement. What impact do you see that having on the results? People who had less saw the impact up close in their family with themselves. Well, one of the things, with, I looked at the demographics after, you know, you, you kind of presented that would be something. And when you take, when you control for in gender non-binary, it comes out much more evenly. I think some of this is, we're also recognizing this is self-reported and it's a randomized sample. It isn't as skewed once you control for the things that need to be controlled for. It's not as skewed as we would think. And that not all these people are people who have had substance use disorders either. They're the general population. Yep. I do think when I saw the 70% data point, I, mean, I think that I find that hard to believe. Uh, substance use touches almost every family. So that was a rather suspect data point for me. It being the fact that it's self-reported, there still may be some shame in reporting, even though it's anonymous, right? People didn't know what they weren't identifying themselves with the information they were providing. Uncle Johnny just drinks too much. He's not an alcoholic, right? I mean, that's, uh, you know, that just a framing of the concept of having a problem with normalized behavior that may be problematic. 
Well, I've got enough in my family to share with that 70%. <laughs> so if they need some help, we can adopt them in. The first couple of sentences in the conclusion of that study were very telling and point to the need for more discussion for overwhelming change. And that's drug use and recovery stigma is deeply entrenched in the U.S. healthcare system and the professionals tasked with delivering care. And you've touched on that during our conversation. So here's the million dollar question. How do we as professionals in the industry, and you and I are very lucky, we have a voice that carries among some people anyways, I'll say more you than me. But how do we make that change? Well, uh, none of these things are easy. In fact, we deal with uh, one of the most complicated problems. And, and I, you know, the co-author of this study, Sean Fogler, is an anesthesiologist. Says he says to me that anesthesiology is a lot simpler than dealing with these things. Which I, I don't know about that, but it is complex. And so, changing any of these things takes a lot of work. And to do so, we have to change the culture. And I think that that's a factor of leadership insisting that we do things different. It's not about somebody coming in and doing a training and saying this isn't, you know, the way to be, we need, you know, a single training kind of thing. It's about consistently changing the culture. You talked about programs where they used stigmatizing language about people who were in those programs. It takes a leader to say, no, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to, you know, frame people out as junkies or let's see, I'm trying to think of some of the Worst things, the, the concept that every time somebody opens their mouth, they're lying. You've heard many of those yeah. things. I know just, you're lying because your lips are moving. That was yeah. a common one when I worked in a treatment community. Like leaders have to insist that we stop that. We don't act that way. We don't treat people that way. Everybody that we're working with is a human being to be treated with dignity and respect. That goes across all of our systems. It's going to take a lot of work, but it can be done. And I agree with you that it's a leadership issue in terms of changing culture. Somebody's got to dig their heels in. We see it in classrooms that the relationship of the teacher to the students in the classroom has a lot of effect on the way the class interacts with each other. So as a leader, they take over that. And as a field, I agree. It's up to leadership to do what we, in kind of the organizational development world, being a learning organization. You're always looking at what's ahead. You're always learning new things and trying to incorporate them in to make your organization better. And I do. I think that's important. You're right. You can train staff all you want to not say, if somebody has a recurrence of use, to say, how'd that work out for you? But that doesn't change the culture. I also think it, as we move forward, getting people to see more examples of successes, I see some of these things changing. And, and there are hospital systems in my community that are using peer services, and they say that some of their more difficult physicians who didn't believe what they were doing was effective, when they started to see that that it was effective and they were able to help people, and some of those people even came back and thanked them, they were able to start to see things differently. So stigma and negative perceptions change when people can relate with the individuals that they're looking at. Like if you look like some person who I never can identify with, you're the other. If you're someone that I can relate to in some way, I'm forced to look at you like a human being who then I treat differently. And that's what we need to do. And it's so simple, but it can be difficult. We got We can't confuse the fact that it's not complicated. It doesn't mean it's not difficult. And I think sometimes we get confused. On, speaking of messaging, simple does not mean easy. It just means non-complex. If I have a three-ton rock in my driveway that I want moved to the other side of my lawn, the solution is simple. Move it. But doing that is not easy. 
you know, and all of this brings me back to the recovery review blog, which I, I love to read and, and talking about improved messaging, you know, and you had said, recovery is the probable outcome for people with substance use disorders when they are provided proper care and support over the long term, just like cancer. Clearly, we can't say that this is we are presently, probably because it's too much to fit on a bumper sticker, but it is attainable. Are you seeing other positive headway besides what you just mentioned in the industry to make it more of a reality? Well, first, you know, the concept of industry, I just have to take a minute, and that took me a long time to square with. And and so when I got in this field in the 80s, it didn't feel like an industry to me at all. It felt like more of a profession of grassroots people helping other individuals. And we had our problems, but it was a different sort of ethos around it. I accept the term industry because of where things have turned now. There's a lot more profit motive and that sort of thing. But it's actually taken some stuff away as well, that grassroots effort. I do think that we've made progress. You know, one of the things that I look at in history is this idea of or the thing called NRAM, which the new recovery advocacy movement that Bill White wrote about a lot, which mm-hmm. was grassroots organizations coming together and, and insisting on changing um, the way America sees addiction by doing some simple things. Not that they weren't difficult, as you say, right. but uh, getting people to focus on recovery rather than pathology, starting to develop longer term supports. Because back in the day, people would go to rehab for 14 or 28 days. Maybe they go to outpatient and then they could go to one of two 12-step fellowships, and that was it. So we're treating a chronic condition in an acute, fragmented way. So they started to change that, and then also by supporting languaging changes to have us reframe things in in ways that were more positive. I think that that's some of the major work that has been done. I mean, I'm encouraged by us starting to look at substance use along a continuum, as well as the healing from substance use on a continuum. Because I think if we start to flesh out what healing looks like from a mild or moderate substance use disorder, it looks very different than a severe. I don't think it does a service to just lump it under the word recovery because they're very different processes, not that they're all to be valued. I think that those are helpful to do. And just the very idea that this is a longer term thing that people have to deal with. I mean, we know that roughly 85% of people who make it to five years of recovery stay in the recovery for the rest of their lives. We don't have a service system that follows that. I think that the oncology reference is that we generally know if somebody reaches five years of non-progression with cancer, they're in remission. And so our our medical systems have designed an entire care system along providing multiple interventions over varying lengths of time and then checking people. I'm not suggesting that people stay in treatment for five years, just like people aren't in oncology treatment for five years. But what we do is stick with people and check with them. And so I think those are very helpful that our field is starting to have those conversations about how do we address this long term. I think for me, the term industry is appropriate because I have to see what we're operating in. And it, yeah. it gives perspective to what you're operating in. But I still like when you said grassroots movements, Larry Kramer pops into my head because mm. he's one of my community organizing heroes. Right? If you had said 30 years ago that one man would change the face of HIV and AIDS in this country, I would have said you're crazy. But he did it because he made relationships and he did wonderful things. He got under people's skin. 
I read in the band played on 30 years ago, yeah. and I agree with you. What an incredible yeah. individual and group of people. I, I wrote an article for Counselor Magazine where my final, about advocacy, my final question was, who's our Larry Kramer? Who's our, who's going to step up and do that? But I understanding that the reason we don't have that kind of follow-up, in my opinion, is because we don't require it. CARF doesn't say there are things you have to have follow-up. You have to be able to access somebody for you know, 30 days post-discharge. It's not longitudinal. Joint commission, the same. Chatterproof, the same. We don't know about outcomes because we're not looking at long-term outcomes. So it's hard to say. And until we are required to do that, I think we're that would start. But from a macro perspective and positive changes, to me, the Surgeon General's report was a game changer because it came from the highest level and it was really straightforward uh, talking about it being a health problem. And so that to me was a, we have to build on that, but it was a big, big change. Here's a tough question. The toughest question of the day. If you had to characterize the current situation with recovery in terms of recovery from substance use disorders, you would say recovery is blank. You know, it is. And I, I've thought about this one. I don't, like bumper sticker, like coming up with one word there. And I tried to do that. I think it's perhaps vital. And I explain that by it's it's vital for individuals with severe substance use disorders, their families and communities. And I think if we truly begin to understand the impact, not only of, a, of addiction and severe substance use, but the positive influence that recovery has on our communities, we start to see that this is something that you know, I can transform individual lives and whole communities. And so I would say vital that we need to focus more on it. I have to be honest, I was so curious of what you were going to come up with with that. I was looking forward to asking that question. And now I really, really like that answer because it's multi-layered, you know, layer upon layer upon layer. So before we finish, anything else you'd like to add? You know, I listened to your, um, you had Brittany Lindsay on on the workforce crisis recently, and I think she raised a lot of points. Like, I don't want to beat up on the treatment centers and the workforce. We're in really challenging times, and I think we need to have some broader conversations. I agree entirely on having measures, as you speak of, but we have sort of a perfect storm. We have crumbling infrastructure. We have a workforce problem. We have burgeoning need. I think we're sort of in a the most challenging time that I've seen in my entire career. I think others see it as well. So I think the positive of that, if there's any, is that uh, crises require people to come together for solutions. And I kind of think we're, we're there. I think we may have an opportunity if we can bring our systems together to really reform our services in ways that meet the needs of community and provide resources to service centers that are attempting to do to help people. And we understand that, you know, the workforce can only do what it knows. Like my aunt, you know, in my last podcast, I entitled it, do the best you can until you know better. I think that's what a lot of people in the field are doing. And I go back to when you mentioned crisis, the late congressman from Oklahoma, Mike Oxley, once said, Congress does two things well. One is nothing, and the other is respond to crisis. And I think that's kind of an American ideal, if you look at it bigger. When things seem to be okay, we don't do much about them. And that's where we should be building and building and building and making it better. But we respond to crisis pretty well until the next crisis comes along. You're a quote guy and a history guy, I can tell. But I think it was Winston Churchill who said, never doubt the ability of the American people to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. Right? <laughs> Did he say that while he was stepping on the neck of Ireland? I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh-oh. 
<laughs> Bill, I want to say thanks for joining me. It's great to talk to you. And we'd like to have you back as things come up. I'd be a that, welcome yeah. guest. So thanks for spending the time with us. Anytime. Thank, uh, thanks for having me. You're welcome. That's going to do it for this episode. And I'd like to thank my offer my thanks to Bill again for joining us to talk about these longstanding issues and ongoing issues. Join us further as we finish the year with other interesting discussions that we hope will inform and entertain. And we will be starting, we have one more podcast this year, we'll be starting our fifth year in January, which is very exciting to me that we've been able to get people to listen and people that want to talk to us. So stay tuned for that and have a great day, everybody. Mm-hmm.